The Energy Gang is brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower is dedicated to advancing the transition to clean energy worldwide, enabled by innovative energy storage and e-mobility systems. Their work maximizes renewables, boosts electric vehicle performance, and propels us into the new clean energy future. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. We're also brought to you by SunGrow, the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees, protecting its suppliers, and helping communities protect themselves by sending out face masks to those in need. Find out more about SunGrow's work and its products at sungrowpower.com. Green Tech Media Podcasts. This week on What It Takes, Michael Liebrich had been many things. An entry-level analyst, an Olympic skier, and a crestfallen dot-com entrepreneur. And then in the mid-2000s, he found his home in the clean energy economy. And I was left sort of almost like wandering the streets going, I'm rich. Nobody in my family's ever been rich. You know, my, my father was a mechanic, my mom was a nurse, and what an extraordinary destabilizing or, or, or sort of odd sensation. Welcome to What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this series, we hear from founders and executives at the most influential clean energy companies. Their backgrounds, their passions, their struggles, their deals, their management philosophies, their near-death experiences. In this episode, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch sits down with Michael Liebrich, founder of New Energy Finance, which since 2009 has been Bloomberg New Energy Finance. But well before that, Michael lost $29 million in the dot-com bust, skied competitively and went to the Olympics, took a formative driving trip through 25 states where he saw environmental destruction that made a very deep impression on him and informed his later career. Even his startup New Energy Finance started out as a mere database. An auspicious walk-in visit made him realize it should be way more than a newsletter. This conversation was recorded remotely. Michael was recorded in Switzerland, where he moved his wife, children, and mother-in-law, gauging that the Swiss would uh, deal better with the pandemic. Turns out it was true. And uh, Emily Kirsch was in Oakland. And to learn more about future speakers and attending a live event on Zoom, uh, go to powerhouse.fund and just click on the events tab. Now here is Emily Kirsch with Michael Liebrick. Enjoy. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone officially to What It Takes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse, and so excited, Michael, to have you here on the show. You started New Energy Finance, a research and analysis firm in 2004, serving as chairman and CEO until you sold the company to Bloomberg uh, when it became Bloomberg New Energy Finance in 2009. You're a leading voice on energy and climate, and we're just super excited to have you here. So welcome. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Of course. And you're joining us from Switzerland, right? I know usually you're based in London, but you're in Switzerland now, so it's 8 or 9 p.m.? That's right. It's 9 p.m., I'm in Switzerland because of uh, the pandemic. We uh, scooped up the kids. We scooped up my mum, who's uh, 89, uh, because we we felt that Switzerland probably was going to handle the whole thing pretty well. And, and, and that was a good call. That was a good call. Switzerland's done a great job. Good. Well, I'm happy you're staying safe. Um, speaking of your family, I want to go go way back even before, before you were around. So um, I know, and you shared that your parents were 
Holocaust survivors, your dad from Austria, I believe, and your mom from Czechoslovakia, and they lived in Israel for a while and then moved to London to rebuild their lives. Um, had your sister, and then in 1963 had you. I know your dad worked as a mechanic and your mom was a nurse before becoming a full-time parent. Uh, And at eight years old, your parents encouraged you to apply to this very prestigious competitive boys' school, and you got in. Uh, I also know that even before that, at three years old, you started skiing. Your parents were skiers, uh, and you learned in the Czech Republic where your grandparents still lived uh, when you were a kid, and you became obsessed. So I'm curious... What role did your upbringing have? Um, and then your school and skiing. Tell me about all of those things and how that how that shaped who you who you were as a kid. But it's that's a really difficult question to start with because, of course, uh, looking back, I can spin all sorts of stories about how, with that background of um, uh, Holocaust survivors, um, uh, my mother was actually in the UK during the war. My father, in fact, was in. Uh, the British mandate in Palestine during the war, and he got there as a, as an illegal. Um, and then, you know, with that background of being among the survivors of a family, and there were, you know, uh, about 70 members did not survive, you know, you could always say, well, that made me resilient, and that made me this, and that made me that. I, I think that's probably over-interpreting. But there's certainly um, an element of outsiderism, uh, of being, um, you know, the kid with that background in that amazing school, I mean, that was a school where all the other kids, uh, their parents were doctors and their parents were solicitors and their parents were judges and their parents were civil servants. And there was me with this kind of weird background uh, and still you know, going to visit my grandparents in. Uh, you said it was Czech Republic. Of course, at the time, it was Czechoslovakia. That's right. uh, the the um, Czech Republic and Slovakia had not yet uh, splintered. Mm-hmm. And so it was Czechoslovakia. And so we were doing these exotic things. And I had this kind of exotic background, but it was not a school where exotic backgrounds were particularly celebrated. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and then tell me, tell me just a little bit about about yeah, skiing and the role that that played in your life early on. And we'll come back to it because I know that's been a thread of, <laughs> of your entire life. But but what was it? You started at three years old. Well, that's right. So we lived in the UK from before. You know, my parents had moved there from before I was born. Uh, actually, around the time my sister was born. Um, and her parents still lived in Czechoslovakia and she'd been a keen skier. And in fact, her father, my grandfather on the mother, on my mother's side had been one of Czechoslovakia's best skiers before the war and had been a, uh, a very keen skier also, you know, after the war had, had taken it up again. And so when we went there, we went to visit a number of times when I was very little. Um, and, uh, so that's where I learned to ski at three and it was survival skiing. I mean, this was not. You know, this is not Aspen. This was a, a farmer's <laughs> field where you either skied or you got caught by the geese. So I skied. <laughs> geese are vicious. I skied uh, and, and I was pretty fast, it turns out. So uh, I beat the geese and, and I'm here to tell the story. Um, so going to college, uh, you shared that you wanted to study art, but you were told that Jews had to be portable. And so you decided to study mechanical engineering and got into Cambridge, where you focused on thermodynamics and nuclear engineering. And then your parents were always really pro-America, but you had never been to the U.S. And so a few years after Cambridge, you got this scholarship for Brits to study in the U.S. And you ventured to the United States to earn an MBA at Harvard. Um, in, in 1990 um, is when you graduated. But I'm curious about this scholarship. I, I think it, it right. required that you get a car and drive around the country for a summer. And so I'm curious, tell me about that trip and what did you see and how did that impact the direction of your life? 
Right. Well, let me let me just sort of that's a huge kind of a synopsis <laughs> of my life, including some sort of slight oddities. It wasn't that I wanted to study art. It was that um, with that family background, you know, we my, we were not educated and we were certainly not wealthy. I mean, absolutely not wealthy. Um, and so I was only able to stay at that amazing school because I was you know, lucky enough or, or focused enough um, to get a scholarship. And when it came to choosing what to study at university, it was very much my parents' view was, look, we can't help you anymore. You know, we, we're, you're, you're way, you've gone way beyond our capability to help. But what we do know is go get a portable or a, get, get a good qualification, you know, engineering, medicine, um, you know, something that means that you can, uh, you, you can move around and you will always have that to fall back on. Cause I was already saying, Hey, I want to go and be a ski bum. And they would say, fine, fine, go and be a ski bum. But first, get a degree, get something that, um, you know, that, that you can fall back on. And I think that, you know, there is a sort of, um, you know, there is a sense uh, of among Holocaust survivors that, you know, Jews have to be excessively self-reliant. You know, if you want to go and study history of art, you know, if you don't have the connections, you don't know that that's a sure thing. Maybe not so wise. But I didn't really want to do that. I, I was um, I was very happy. Uh, you know, I chose engineering. Basically, my father was a mechanic and I was going to take a degree. So what's a mechanic with a degree? Well, that's an engineer. And nobody else from my school did that. Um, and then when I graduated, I was part of a generation in the UK uh, called the brain drain uh, generation, where a lot of people went into financial services or went overseas and relatively few stayed in engineering because, frankly, it was a very bad time. This is the mid 80s for UK engineering companies. Uh, people, you know, you were, you were badly paid. It was disorganized. It was, uh, you know, if you look at the cars we were producing then, they were, um, you know, not exactly uh, state of the art. Um, and, and so it was a, a tough time. And I went off to be a management consultant, partly because of that, and partly because it meant that I could ski. Um, because I, you know, that's one of the few careers where you can sort of do some studies and then disappear for a few months and then come back and pick up where you left off. And then after that, I won this amazing scholarship. Um, it's called the Harkness Fellowships. Um, it still exists, but sadly, um, for reasons I don't fully understand, it kind of almost ran out of money. It used to be the equivalent of the roads. This is for anybody in Britain who was, you know, who, who, who had a, you had to have a very strong academic career, a few years of work and showing some kind of success at work. And you had to be very committed to American UK relationships are so very similar to the, um, to, to the, uh, Rhodes scholars. Um, but I went there and then shortly after it kind of blew up, they ran out of money and it's now a much, much shriveled program. So I tell people, wow, I was a Harkness fellow thinking that they'll be, you know, incredibly wowed, you know, the sort of like Bill Clinton, the, uh, you know, the Rhodes scholar, that kind of thing. Uh, and people just go, huh? What? But it did pay for an entire, uh, Harvard MBA and it did pay for, as you said, um, driving around America during the two during the summer between two years, uh, and it included things like book allowance and insurance and a car allowance. I mean, it was just a magnificent program and, and a great um, great privilege um, to have been, you know, one of the one of the final years of, of people like myself to have won it. Yeah, and back to your to to the management consulting that you did. Actually, hit pause. We'll come back to that. Um, I know while you were still at Harvard, you wrote this critique of HBS's lack of curriculum that focused on environmental issues. In uh, 1989, you wrote in their student newsletter, the environment will be an increasingly important business issue throughout our working lives, which today I think 
everyone listening feels like, yeah, of course, that that's obvious. It wasn't obvious in 1989. And so I'm curious, have you, do you feel like your views have become mainstream? And then we'll come back to, to college days and consulting. Yeah, I guess going back to that was 1989. So we're now talking 20, uh, 30, you know, what is it, 31 years ago. And I suppose in a way, it's weird because it doesn't feel like that. But my whole career has been my views, which were, you know, quite provocative and, and a bit out there, sort of becoming mainstream. And I'd actually forgotten that I wrote that piece. What happens is I wrote two things for the Harvard Business School newspaper, uh, which is called Harbus, the Harbus News. And one was a gossip column, which was fabulous. It was an anonymous gossip column, and it was a fantastic way of sort of um, settling scores. But the other thing I did was I started a column called Good Business. And the reason I started that was my se- beginning of my second year, I had driven around um, – I don't know, let's call it 25 states in the US. I drove right around the circumference. And I, I just, it was a you know, fantastic trip, probably even 30 states, to be honest. And I just was kind of shocked at the state of the environment. And I just remember one incident where I was in uh, Oregon. I'd driven all the way up Route 1 from, you know, from, from San Diego right the way up. And I got into Oregon and I got stuck behind uh, these logging trucks which are just these vast things. I mean, it's essentially a bunch of huge logs of old growth forest with a cab and a rear, uh, a, a rear, uh, I don't know what to call it, gurney or a real, a, a rear set of wheels. And I get, kept getting stuck behind them. And then it started to rain and the rivers that we were driving alongside these, these, uh, these sort of logging roads or even main roads, the rivers were running brown like hot chocolate. And I just thought, man, I thought America was ahead of this stuff. I thought this is, you know, I came here to, to learn cutting edge business. And what I'm seeing is actually, yeah, fantastic wealth creation, fantastic, um, you know, business, the finance, the sophistication of Wall Street and the Chicago, uh, commodities and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, at that time, Michael Milken and junk bonds was amazing. But when it came to those businesses that had any interface with the environment, I was really shocked. So I came back and I wrote this column, uh, good business, which now seems to be incredibly sort of, uh, visionary. And what I was actually doing was criticizing uh, HBS because I thought that HBS should be getting us ahead of the curve and not simply, you know, fulfill ticking boxes so that we could all go off and work for, you know, the Goldman Sachs and the McKinsey's and, and, uh, uh, and the JP Morgan's of the world, you know, that there was, should be something a little bit more progressive uh, going on there. And, and so I was being provocative and it turns out I was, I was pretty on the money. Absolutely. And still are. I know sometimes <laughs> um, I know that <laughs> you didn't. So you were thinking about energy and the environment then, but then didn't return to it until 2004, in part because you took this hiatus to return to skiing. And while earning your MBA at Harvard, you uh, you were able to participate in the Olympics uh, because moguls became an official Olympic sport um, at that time. And so you came out of skiing retirement to represent the British ski team. You competed in World Cups in between your exams and then later competed in the 1992 Olympics. Um, what was it like competing at that level? It sounds like you, you had this competitive spirit even as a kid to get into and succeed at this this prestigious school that, that you got into, um, despite not having the wealth and the parental kind of careers that your your peers there had. Um, so what was it like competing at that high level? And then what were you like at that time in your life? <laughs> well, I mean, one adjective for me pretty much at any time in my life is probably going to be competitive. 
I am very competitive. And it's partly also a political philosophy and, it, and it's relevant for the clean energy space that, you know, we don't need um, all to hold hands and do kumbaya or whatever. We need to compete because it's under, comp it's, it's under competitive conditions that you push, you know, not, it's not, it's not like I don't compete to beat other people. I compete uh, to push myself. So I was like that at school. I was in this really, you know, it was a, it, this was a, this was a highly competitive school. I don't know. I, when I, if I told you stories about it, you'd be appalled. It would be child abuse. In fact, uh, a lot of it actually technically was, and there's, there's reports on that too. Um, but the, the, you know, I, I, I was sort of, you know, I, I lent into it because I am a competitive sort. I have a sister, you know, so I think there's a lot of people out there probably understand, uh, you know, th that you either kind of compete or go under. Um, and then the skiing though, it, what was, what was odd about it was, I was, I just loved skiing and I loved showing off on skis, which is basically, I was a mogul skier. I was a freestyle skier. I mean, it's like a license to show off on skis. Fabulous. And I did that. And then I sort of found myself, um, being invited to national team training camps, then being put into the regional competition. So not the world cup yet, but the, uh, the Europa cup and doing incredibly well, getting results that no Brit had kind of ever, you know, achieved. And partly because it was a very young sport and, you know, the best skiers had gone off to do alpine and I had done freestyle. Um, and then I sort of thought, OK, look, I have to get serious. You know, that admonition of my parents, you know, you've got to get serious, be a ski bum, sure, but get serious. And I thought, OK, I'm going to uh, I'm going to retire. I'm going to go to business school. I'm going to have this big, well-paid career. And how wonderful that I've done some competitions. And while I was at business school, um, suddenly my sport moguls became an Olympic sport. It was meant to be aerials, but one of the leading aerialists crashed at the uh, when it was a test event in Calgary in 88 while I was at business school. And um, so then um, the kind of, you know, the powers that be decided, well, let's take moguls. So I'm sitting there thinking, I'm the British champion and I've done well at a regional level in a sport which is now Olympic. I mean, who's not going to kind of put a few things on hold and give it a go? And I'm not, I mean, just, okay, I'm just going to do one thing. I was not Eddie the Eagle, right? I mean, I ended up in the Olympics placing midfield. I think I was 32nd out of um, about 60. I mean, sometimes I say 32nd out of, I think at the time there was like five and a half billion of us. So that was pretty good. But I, I placed midfield. I beat some very good skiers out of, you know, Switzerland and Austria. And, um, you know, and I could have done a little bit better had I had a better day. Um, but it was, it was an incredible experience it's something it's an amazing it's also amazing that we're still talking about it you know 1992 this is now uh 28 years later and it's still for many in a way maybe for other people more than for me it, it, it's a sort of foundational story of michael and you know it was something i did um i enjoyed it and i was reasonably good at it but i was never going to win the olympics you know I, and and in fact i qualified i went to albertville I then qualified for Lillehammer. Um, there was this time when the Olympics, the Winter Olympics used to be the same year as summer. And then it kind of staggered. So there was only two years between Albertville and Lillehammer. And I was just did one more season after Albertville for fun, did some World Cups, did some ski touring, did some ski climbing, you know, uh, mountaineering, and suddenly found that I had qualified uh, for Lillehammer and, um, and actually didn't go because I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to do another nine or 10 months and I might improve from 32nd place to 22nd place. But frankly, in the grand scheme of things, I kind of felt like I was already, uh, Lillehammer was 90, I'd have been 31 
And, you know, you kind of have to worry about Peter Pan syndrome. 31 is too old to be a mediocre international competitor, but a midfield international competitor. I mean, you've got to move on uh, and start, you know, getting a little bit more serious. That was a theory. Yeah. Um, it's certainly foundational, it sounds like, to who you are and who you still are, given this competitive spirit. Um, <laughs> and so you mentioned you mentioned consulting at McKinsey um, because it enabled you to ski when you wanted to for, for long periods of time. And, and you spent five years as an analyst and manager working on everything from cheese to perfumes to life insurance to food fragrances. Uh, and, and, and eventually you went from all of that to starting this ski based travel startup, which became this bigger company. If you travel, you raised capital at the height of the company, you were worth $30 million, but then in the dot com <laughs> bust of 2001, you ended up with $300,000 to your name and you were unemployed. Um, and so I'm curious, what, what did you learn from the bust? Um, yeah. What did you learn from that? Yeah. Well, you, you make it sound like um, I'm trying to think of um, that uh, the film character who's sort of done everything. Uh, what's his What's his name? Um, I am horrible at all uh, things uh, film. Tom Hanks. Okay, Tom, Tom, <laughs> I do know who that is. The, the, the Tom Hanks character who's sort of there for everything. And, and I was uh, I was right there during the uh, the dot com boom bust cycle. So I was at I was at McKinsey. Uh, they were magnificent and let me do my skiing. Um, then they were a bit less magnificent because some people at McKinsey thought that it was not serious to have this guy uh, continuing to compete and uh, making different life choices to these incredibly focused and competitive people. Um, but I, I stayed on until um, 1995, hoping that something bigger and better and obvious would come along, and it didn't. So in the end, I, I quit. I actually um, ran a television news agency, Associated Press Television, which was a kind of vast startup turnaround. And I mean, Amazing stories of, um, of, of suddenly being hit by, uh, bills for satellite uplinks out of Chechnya of, you know, millions of dollars that were not in the budget and, uh, and having all of the kind of the, the, the overhead, you know, coming to me and saying, what, what happened? I'm like, well, I don't know. Do I look Chechen to you? And, uh, you know, um, but I then, uh, when I left there, um, I was very committed to doing something uh, on the Internet. I actually have been online since um, before business school, even before I went to business school. I had actually set up the research house that I was with um, to use modems and get company accounts online. So I was online before business school. I was online after business school. And then when this thing started to take off and even the work you, you mentioned, things like um, uh, flavors and fragrances and supply chains and so on. Um, a lot of that was shifting. It, it had been very expensive to automate your supply chain. And then suddenly TCPIP, Internet Technology, came along and it was just like, wow, this is going to be so big. And in fact, it's one of the things that enables the clean energy revolution. The fact that our control costs, instead of having dedicated phone lines and dedicated software, suddenly there's all this stuff which is off the shelf and is very, very cheap because it's packet switch and, and so on. So um, I really wanted to do something in the Internet um, but before I could start something, the valuation started to go kind of crazy. Um, I, I did start a because um, I I wrote a book on skiing called uh, Complete Skier. You can buy it online, uh, usually for one penny. Um, <laughs> whoever's selling it makes money on the postage. It's a nice little scam going there, but um, it's still out there if you look for it. Complete Skier uh, by by me and my sister. Um, I put that online. And suddenly people were asking me where they should go on holiday. And I was providing leads to a travel agent and selling ski holidays online. And at one point I had like the, I think we were a top 10 trafficked website 
in the UK during the winter because we had snow reports, which I had sort of kind of borrowed without explaining what the internet was from various people who had snow reports. Um, and, and then, but I didn't want to run that business. You know, skiing businesses are not, at least in the UK, they're not serious businesses. It's seasonal. It's minority. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's just not serious. And um, everybody in the end goes bankrupt. So I raised money from Bernard Arnault, uh, who was building a portfolio of businesses. I brought in a professional team and I joined Arnault's family company called Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy, LVMH. Uh, and I ran his tech investments for uh, about as long as it took for the dot-com bubble to completely uh, blow up, which was also a very good experience. Also, it's been very helpful when I built New Energy Finance. And, and actually, frankly, as I coach um, angel company uh, CEOs now through COVID, um, I strongly recommend living through a most massive recession uh, to every business person um, because it will set you up for life as long as you learn the lessons. Um, and so I, I was at one point, um, I owned some options in all of the internet companies that, uh, Bernard Arno had invested in, uh, on paper. It was worth $30 million. I didn't for an instant believe it was worth that. I thought I would get 10% of that out. I thought I'd be able to kind of navigate the, the, the boom bust, which was quite obviously going to happen, uh, and get out with maybe $3 million. And that would be my, 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 you know, uh, that was, be what I used to start my next venture. And uh, I lost um, 99% of it. I didn't get 10% out. I got 1% out and found myself unemployed and unemployable. Um, just an extraordinary situation. I have, I, you know, there's me thinking, I have this marvelous resume and I've got this prize and that prize and, and, and Harvard and Cambridge and firsts in this and prizes for thermodynamics and, and, and Baker scholarship and, uh, and, 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 and I can't get a job. And my money is just going down, 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 down. That's rough. Um, so that was interesting. That's rough. And at that time, so I know you're... I was very angry. I tell you, it was not a good time personally. Uh, it was very, it's very destabilizing going through that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I know too, as you were watching your bank account dwindle in 2003, I believe, you were in um, in Bolivia and in Brazil, and you were witnessing all of this aging energy infrastructure. And, and as a climber and a skier, you were seeing the impacts of incumbent energy pollution and impact on snowpack and things like visibility were compromised. And you knew about alternatives like wind and solar, and you had all this experience calculating experience curves, and you knew that renewables were going to get cheaper and cheaper and eventually cross over. And then you also saw this market gap that uh, a market gap for data and clean energy resources um, for finance and energy industries that just wasn't being met by, by anybody else. And so in 2004, in your work, Words, you you lowered yourself further into the abyss of not having any money and not knowing exactly what to do. And you started New Energy Finance with your other unemployed friend. And so many people ask themselves, you know, should I, I have an idea, should I start a company? But they decide not to. And so I'm curious, what made you answer yes to that question, should I start this company? Well, yeah. So once, once, once again, I mean, there's a great job of kind of compressing a lot of things that I did. I, I didn't just sort of sit there going, oh my goodness, I've got $300,000 and Everybody I know is now unemployed. My Rolodex has been, you know, sort of neutron bombed and, and I don't know what's going to happen. I thought that, but I also, um, spent some time traveling. Um, I was applying for jobs. I was trying to get jobs, uh, because I was aware that at some point I will, you know, have to move back with my, uh, parents and those sorts of things. 
And um, you referred to sort of lowering yourself into the void. There's a fantastic story. Some of your uh, listeners uh, will know it called Touching the Void uh, by Joe Simpson. And he climbs and it's a huge, great saga. But fundamentally, he ends up with a broken leg in a crevasse. His climbing buddy is uh, has had to cut the rope and leave. And he's halfway down and he's going to die. He can't climb out. And what he does is to say, well, I got one option here, the option value. I mean, you could call it perhaps it's a sort of Nouriel Rubini anti-fragile. I mean, there's, you know, you can either die or maybe not die. And so he lowers himself into the abyss. And then he finds that he can drag himself along and out. Uh, and hence you get the Hollywood film and the book and all those sorts of things. Um, so I sort of felt like, okay, I can eke out my money, but I'm not being successful in the job hunt. Um, and everything that I found interesting seem to be energy related. There seem to be the problems. So aging infrastructure, power cuts. Um, uh, at the time, you know, people talk about peak oil. So it looked like there was going to be depletion of oil, um, pollution, local pollution. I had time to read about climate change. And although I'm a natural sort of skeptical person, uh, I sort of came away thinking, actually, half, you know, because I started by saying, well, you know, it's gone up by 0.6 of a degree in the last you know, century. It's no biggie. And then I thought, well, hang on a second, 0.6 of a degree is actually a lot in a century. And it hasn't, you know, and, and so I started to read around it. Um, and then I could see um, potential solutions. I was totally ignorant about wind and solar, uh, other than that I had, you know, done a little bit of a, a sort of aeronautics and during my time in Cambridge, uh, some fluid uh, dynamics. Mainly what caught my attention was the talk about the hydrogen revolution, you know, 2003, that we were all going to go to hydrogen. Um, and so I started to say, well, you know, is there a company I could run or is there something I could do that will give, um, that will rebuild my horrible wrecked, trashed career? Uh, and, you know, and something that would be a sort of safe environment for me to, uh, to do something. Um, I quite quickly decided that the hydrogen revolution was, um, not a thing in 2003, 2004. Um, and so, broadened to talk about clean energy technologies right across the board. And um, very quickly, I mean, by 2005, it was clear that, yeah, I, I hit a mega trend. I, I had been ahead of the curve. And it wasn't interesting. In 2005, nobody had a budget to subscribe to an energy, uh, a clean energy information service. But they all told me that I was doing, you know, you know, that they wished they had. And by 2006, it started to kind of, you know, the business started to fly um, and, and, um 2006 was was the first million. 2007 was three million, then seven and a half, and then ten million, and then we sold. So it was very, very uh, rapid um, from the point when, from about 2005, it became very, very fast. Yeah, I I, I learned that um, year one, so in 2004, revenue was two thousand pounds, um, and 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 your team, your initial team was a bunch of interns who you were paying 10 pounds per day in yeah. cash uh, to do all this data input. They were working in your living room. Um, you had borrowed some money from your brother-in-law. You were paying the interns with your own savings. Your your co-founder, who was also previously unemployed, you were all just scrapping together to make it happen. And then, and then the next year you went from 2,000 pounds to 175,000 pounds, and then that trajectory that you just laid out. And so you didn't end up raising money for the first two years of the company until 2006, when I believe you took on debt. But is it correct that you never raised venture capital? And if so, why not? I had really suffered a very substantial sort of loss of confidence. So the idea of, you know, starting this business, losing money every month, 
and going and raising venture capital. And I had some bad experiences with venture capital during that whole dot-com period. I mean, people who invited me in, had me present, and then told me that they weren't going to invest, but they were doing due diligence on a competitor that they wanted to invest in. So, I mean, really uh, ugly, uh, ugly things. And if you want to know who that is, uh, you can put it in the show notes. Um, but uh, he still has a very, uh, a very good career today, but I'll get him one day. Um, not that I'm competitive. Um, but I, so I started the business Clearly. and, um, yeah, I was putting in, I think it was seven or eight thousand pounds a month. You know, I'm sitting there on, I say three hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand pounds, and I'm covering my living costs and putting in seven thousand a month and my bank balance going down and down. And I had to borrow. Uh, when I sold the business eventually, um, the very next day, I paid off my brother-in-law and American Express. So yeah, it was pretty, I call it ultrapreneurship. Um, <laughs> we were using it in interns, uh, paying them 10 pounds a day. And um, one of the criteria for choosing interns was you had to have your own laptop. Uh, and then one time we found a super intern. She was absolutely our favorite intern ever because she had two laptops. Um, <laughs> so so that was, that, that was how we did it. And um, I think now you probably wouldn't be allowed to do that. At the time, you kind of could. And what we did, though, we did a few things when we really involved the interns in the business. They chose the brand. They chose the name. They were in the discussions, strategic discussions. Um, quite a few of them, I, I'm going to guess half a dozen interns from that period are actually still with uh, Bloomberg NEF. Um, and, and, and they know who they are and, uh, and they were just, you know, brilliant at, at growing with the business. Um, but yeah, I can remember one time, um, there was the, there was actually, um, uh, it was not a bomb attack. It was the copy, t- copycat attack of the London 7-7 bombs. And there was a cordon thrown around our office, which is in a very dodgy part of town. And uh, and I had to kind of find a back way in with a whole pile of £10 notes. And then I went and I paid everybody who was working in this former chocolate factory. Uh, and so that's how we did it. And, uh, you know, it's probably over the course of the years, literally hundreds of interns um, that had their first uh, jobs. And then yeah, we would move them on. After about eight or ten weeks, we would move them on because it's very abusive. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's a great deal that says you'll learn a lot, but you'll work for 10 pounds a day. But when you really like somebody and they're doing effectively a job, you've got to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to hire you or I can't, I don't have the money. And we moved them on. So we did a bunch of that. I think we held on to some of the good ones though. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. In fact, Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. Once operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 12 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. The facility will leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power with its partners offers an end-to-end energy storage management solution. Core Power's newly commissioned 2 gigawatt hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E, corepower.com. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is taking the COVID-19 outbreak seriously. It is getting products to people very quickly and on time and doing it safely. 
SunGrow prioritized the safety of its employees by investing in measures to protect them from infection inside the factory. And it's working closely with suppliers and customers to make sure that inverters get to renewable energy projects around the world on time. SunGrow has also worked with communities to get face masks to people who need them. You can find out about SunGrow's work and its products at sungrowpower.com. Um, what what exactly was the product early on and what was the business model? So to start with, um, because I'm a sort of left brain data guy, the product to start with was a database. So we took every um, investment that we could find in clean energy and we did what I called extracting the DNA. So we took all of the kind of who was the uh, who was the investor, who was the investee, who was the debt provider, who was and we put all of that into very structured data sets manually. I mean, now you could probably get a bunch of it done with machine learning, which didn't exist then. Um, what I very quickly discovered was when I showed it to people, they said, wow, this is great. I got to have this. And so I would set them up with an account so that they could use it. And I could see from the server statistics that they didn't. Uh, and the reason is to do with databases are difficult. To, the, the big investment when you sign up to any of these services is not the subscription it's your time getting to know how to use it. And knowing that, yes, you know, my boss is uh, busting my chops and I, and I got to get some data and you've got to be confident that it's worth the 20 minutes to get it out of new energy finance. Um, and so we started to write newsletters to highlight what was in there and to kind of show, well, you could do um, trends in investment in different types of biofuels, or you could look at which countries were investing more in, you know, the U.S. was doing more thin film solar and China was doing silicon solar. And you could sort of set up a little tension there and write a story. And uh, and so that that was through 20, 2006. So four, five, six, we did data and then we did newsletters. And then in 2007, um, very lucky, um, a guy called Ken Bruder, who was a former HBS guy, um, came along, came through the door at random and said, you know, you're crazy. You should be selling insight. You need to sell insight services, uh, because you, you know, so much. And I thought, okay, what is an insight service? We launched that in, and that's, you know, market size, price forecasting, uh, you know, supply chain analysis to the more kind of, you know, forward looking stuff. We launched that in um, 2007, and it flew to the point where, you know, by April 2009, we were in a sale process of the business. So we really only ran our main product for two years uh, before selling, two and a half years before selling. And selling, you know, it was a, it was a good sale, I think, for all round, for the buyer and for us. Yeah, coming coming out of, you know, what was, you know, what you've described as a failure in your career, and then to have this kind of exit um, what was that like for you? And then also, what was it like post-acquisition? I know that that can be a tenuous time. So I'm curious what that was like for you. Yeah, I mean, it was the exit process was incredible, uh, incredibly stressful um, because you know, we did a competitive auction, competitive, of course. Um, and then there comes a point where, you know, it was absolutely clear that Bloomberg would be a magnificent owner for this. And it was also the best deal for the shareholders and for the staff, which is very important to me. Um, so you go exclusive and then you are extremely exposed. Uh, you know, it's not that you have to lower yourself into the abyss, but you are tightrope walking across to the closing of the deal. So it was very, very stressful. And like any deal, there's always sort of odd things and, you know, issues that get thrown up by, um, uh, you know, due diligence and whatever. And so you navigate through that. And I was very aware 
that the Copenhagen Climate Conference was sort of barreling towards us. And I was personally very pessimistic about that. So I really wanted the deal um, closed. It closed on day two of the of that conference at um, 7.30 at night on the 9th of December, 2009. Not that I remember. I, and um, Wow. And I was left sort of almost like wandering the streets going, I'm, I'm rich. M- nobody in my family's ever been rich. You know, my, my father was a mechanic. My mom was a nurse. Um, and, um, and what an extraordinary <laughs> destabilizing or, or, or sort of odd sensation. And, uh, and I went home uh, where my, my, you know, my wife was waiting. And then suddenly the phone rang. Uh, and it was actually Dan Doktoroff, the, um, the president of um, Bloomberg, saying, I just want to say I'm really delighted we cl- completed the deal and I'm going to be heading over to the UK. You must be out celebrating. Uh, and I said, um, Dan, thanks so much for the call. I really appreciate wow. you thinking of me at this point and coming over tomorrow to welcome my team. But actually, I'm eating a baked potato at home. I was so <laughs> wrung out, so exhausted yeah. uh, that that was the best I could do in terms of celebration, a baked potato. Sounds but it was a good baked potato. And, you know, the next day I paid off my, my, um, my brother-in-law. I paid off, um, uh, American Express. And, you know, the handover, the post-merger acquisition, uh, post-acquisition sort of merging of, of the teams and so on. I had done some of that work at McKinsey. You know, there's all these sort of historic things that I had actually done. I'd worked as a consultant on post-merger situations. And so I was very aware that it's quite easy for the two sides to become, you know, tense and us and them to persist. I worked in one case at McKinsey where 10 years later, the two companies that had merged still referred to each other as us and them. Wow. And them and us. Um, so I coached the team. I said, look, there are certain things where we have to put our foot down because we understand our business. We understand our clients. We understand the data sets. And so there are some things that, you know, that could go really badly wrong. And the things that we didn't have to dig in over that we could say, okay, look, we would rather, you know, do this or do that. Uh, but actually it's really not worth falling out with our new owners. I did a lot of explicit coaching in those early years. Um, cause I ran it uh, as CEO, uh, from 2009 until, uh, 2014, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, four or five years, um, but I had an amazing team. I mean, I couldn't have done it. I've got, you know, there's John Moore, who's still, you know, running it now, who's doing a magnificent job. And, you know, he was my COO. He was my number two. Um, so I was able to sort of, and Bloomberg, to their credit, just kind of let me get on with stuff. Um, they let me get away with things that very few people within Bloomberg are allowed to do. It's a very um, structured organization. Um, and, you know, but I was allowed to sort of, you know, not, Flat, you know, not check in every morning and go off to conferences without having to go through multiple uh, layers of permissions uh, and so on. So they they had me report to an exceptionally uh, wise executive, um, and um, and it worked well. And then by 2014, I dropped down to half time, um, almost. Well, I was chairman of the advisory board. It was almost like an executive chairman role. And then 2017, I became just a senior contributor, which is what I am now, no executive role. Um, but I do write once every uh, quarter and I try to kind of stir things up and, 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 and provoke the, the sector and also, you know, help to pull together some strains and some threads, uh, within the Bloomberg New Energy Finance output, which I still think is the best in the world. Um, so I, I try to build on that and take the story one step further each time. 
While you're doing all of this in your career, you're also an industry thought leader and you're a partner and you're a parent. And what what was it like <laughs> to do all of those things at the same time? Um, busy, definitely busy. Um, because I, I met my wife, uh, who actually was a, um, she was a contractor with new energy finance, um, didn't work directly for me. Uh, and, and so, you know, that became a thing and that also had to be managed, uh, which was, you know, we had to, again, put some time and energy and work with the remuneration committee and, uh, tell people in the right way within the company. Um, she actually, uh, fell pregnant with our eldest, uh, in, um, our eldest was born in August 2009, so about three, four months before wow. uh, we sold. Actually, um, my eldest uh, was the youngest delegate at uh, the Copenhagen Climate Conference. Oh. She was there. She was about four months wow. old. Um, I think in general, and I did, you know, I was, I had always done some, um, I don't know, you call it industry thought leadership, but really part of my strategy as new energy finance to market the business was to try to get very close to some of the great names like the UN and the World Economic Forum uh, and so on, because um, we were asking for a subscription, which was way bigger than most subscriptions. This is not a FT subscription. Uh, this was you know tens of thousands of dollars. And we needed to give the, the analysts who really, really needed it, had to go to their boss, uh, to the you know managing directors, vice president, whatever, and justify it. And I figured that that was just a lot easier if they could say, well, you know, this is the, this is the guy that, you know, he was, uh, he's on the UN Secretary General's high level group for sustainable energy for all, or they, they write that, uh, that, that, uh, report. They wrote the green finance report for World Economic Forum. Um, so I, I was doing a bunch of essentially pro bono thought leadership, but it wasn't pro bono. It was what I did for branding. Um, and I have kept that going. I'm now. Um, on a number of sort of, you know, uh, I'm a, uh, one of the commissioners on the IEA's Commission on uh, Urgent Energy Efficiency. Um, is it marketing anymore? Is it thought leadership? I don't know. I mean, it's also partly just hanging out with my mates. I've got to know so many of these people so well. Uh, I, it wouldn't cross my mind not to always do that. So I suppose just one thing I would say, it's a, it's been a theme throughout my career. You can do a lot more than you think. So when I was at McKinsey, I was competing in the World Cup, and I wrote a book on skiing. And yeah, I probably went to the pub a little bit less often than, you know, than, than I would otherwise have done. Um, but, you know, I've always, when, even when I was building new energy finance, I don't even know, um, I don't know, if, uh, so I was, uh, I don't know if it's known, but I was also um, first a trustee and then chairman of a medical charity, the leading charity for colorectal um, research in the UK, the St. Mark's Hospital Foundation. St. Mark's is an amazing hospital that um, treated uh, Charles Dickens's piles. It's been going for 180 odd years. And um, and I helped to professionalize their fundraising and raise, I don't know, um, probably 15 million pounds during that, you know, during that period. You can do these things um, if you just sort of don't take no for an answer. And obviously you have to work pretty darn hard. And you know, there's some sacrifices, there's some costs, perhaps, you know, um, if my wife was here, you could ask whether she enjoyed every moment of having, having me do all these crazy things. But, um, you know, we only get one pass through this life. Um, I don't watch uh, game shows. I don't watch TV series. I don't, I don't, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've just kind of 
got rid of and maybe that's what frees me up to do a few more crazy things than the average uh, than the average bear makes sense to me <clears throat> speaking of average bears uh, we're gonna move into and close with our high voltage round these are quick questions really quick answers uh, starting with if you were going to be an animal what animal would you be and why oh my goodness that is a high, okay I, i'm gonna stall for time while i think um <laughs> I'm just obsessed at the moment with uh, our new boxer dog. She's the Swiss Army knife of dogs. She can do a bit of everything, uh, and she's absolutely fantastic. Um, my wife didn't tell me we were getting a boxer dog because she was afraid that I would object because I was too busy. Uh, but I absolutely adore her, and I think she has a pretty good life. So, boxer dog. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Um, I thought I had all the time in the world uh, until I was about 12. Uh, and now I, <laughs> uh, after that, I, I know that we don't, um, we definitely don't, uh, you know, we get whatever it's going to be 70, 80, 90 years. I'm not a big believer in transhumanism. And I think we should try and leave the planet a better place than we found it. Um, and, um, and we should try and be a good person. I don't really know why I'm not a religious person, but I have a very strong belief that we should, uh, try to be good, good to each other, good to the planet. Um, so I, I think I, I probably used to believe, to be honest, I'm going to be, I also probably believed a whole load of really stupid things that about people um, that are completely unacceptable and untenable. I don't think I was ever the worst person, but I grew up in the 1970s, the 1980s, um, and I certainly shared some of those attitudes. Uh, I tried, absolutely, I tried to deprogram myself explicitly from those. Um, but I definitely used to believe or just accept a load of stuff that, that I'm sort of glad I no longer believe. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Um, oh, gosh. Um, I, you know, if they don't have to be a live person, I would love for my, my grandmother to hear it. Um, my grandparents, uh, uh, the four of them, Three died when I was pretty young. One died when I was actually at business school, my grandmother on my mother's side. Um, I'd love her to listen to it. And then I could try and explain what the hell it was all about. Um, and my dad as well, because, um, you know, when I left McKinsey, he thought I had essentially thrown my whole career and my life away. And actually, it's been pretty good. If I look at what I've got now, you know, wife, children, um, business, respect, um, being, you know, honored to be on this sort of show. Uh, I'd love to, I'd love to tell him about that. Uh, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because. Entrepreneurs are not always prepared to do what it takes to succeed. If you really knew me, you would know. That some of the stuff I say, I'm floating a trial balloon and I don't yet believe a hundred percent. Success is. Success is being a whole person. And by that, I mean not having to wear a mask uh, while you're at work to try to hide your emotions or to work on stuff you don't enjoy. And then to have to try and spend the weekends making up to your children to bring it all together, live one life, um, be intellectually coherent as in coherent as you can be. Um, and, uh, and if you don't like your job, quit tomorrow. I'm most proud of. I think professionally, you know, new energy finance, it's going to be very hard to match that. Uh, for those who are rugby fans, you'll remember uh, in 2003, 
when the England team won the World Cup and there was this extraordinary Johnny Wilkinson drop goal right in the last few seconds. The ball came back to him. He cleared it. Uh, he scored the drop goal and the world erupted and his life was changed. And you know, I'm sure he's a good guy and I'm sure he's very proud of other things he's done, but he'll never be able to recreate that. And I think I'll never be able to recreate, you know, new energy finance was lightning in a bottle. The people, you know, just we, 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 it was just so exciting. There were so many good people. We fired people that we thought were, you know, we, we had this thing called the AFZ, the asshole free zone. And I, I fired <laughs> the Europe, you know, I'm not sure if I should say what his role was, but I fired somebody who was a director level hire because he was just being brutal to some of the support staff. Mainly they were women and I didn't think that he was uh, a good person and we suspended him and he resigned while he was on, uh, on furlough. And we just that, you know, the ability to do that. And to be growing your revenues at, you know, 500% a year and to be working on the right issues in the world. Um, I don't know that I'll ever professionally be able to recreate that. I'm incredibly proud. And I'm proud of those hundreds of interns who started with me and who are now, you know, senior vice presidents at investment banks or they're working on uh, projects in Africa or they're doing whatever they're doing. Some of them are, you know, some of them are not doing anything in clean energy, but I, you know, I, I hope they will remember, um, that we just had this moment in time. Last question, what it takes to build. And, and can I just say the other, that was my professional thing. And I, I, I've got to say also, um, you know, I'm not the perfect, you know, husband and father, but I do some things right. And so I'd like a little <laughs> tiny bit of credit. If my kids ever watch this, I want them to say, yeah, you know, okay, we weren't new energy finance, but we turned out okay. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> um, last question to close, to build a successful startup, what it takes is... I think to build a successful startup, um, it requires, uh, 360 degrees. You know, you've got, you've got to have a lot of luck, but you've also got to, um, to do, you know, you've got to have the right investors. You've got to have the right market. You've got to make, you know, make the right hires. You've got to develop the right, um, uh, product. You've really got to do a bunch of things. I actually wrote a piece on this. I got it the five jobs of the startup uh, or the rapid growth CEO, um, because there are some things that you have to do and some things you have to delegate. Um, but above all, I think you've got to really not kid yourself. You've got to not kid yourself because you might love doing marketing or PR, but actually the product just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And you can't kid yourself. Um, you can, you might be great at raising money. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're filming this in the week that, um, Nicola, uh, you know, Nikola Motors, the market cap went to $33 billion. And I know that Trevor Milton is as high as a kite on the success of this incredible reverse IPO. And he hasn't got a clue what is coming down the track in terms of how hard it will be for him, uh, to, to deliver that business. So don't kid yourself. Um, and then I think there's some other things, um, physical stamina. I was really lucky, maybe because of the sports career. But, you know, being able to be first in and last home or being able to, you know, get out of bed four in the morning, get to the airport, get to that conference, um, shine in front of the, the, the investors when you really don't feel like shining and just not getting ill uh, and not not uh, not having, you know, mental health issues, being strong mentally um, is it's I, I don't know of enough that has been written about those issues for entrepreneurs Hmm. Uh, that's the foundation that you build entrepreneurship on is your personal um, ability to kind of, you know, just keep going, you know, just so the, like the, the, the Duracell bunny, you just got to keep going. 
Because if you stop, your team definitely stops. Well said. Well, this has been amazing and such an honor to talk with you and have this much time with you. I have followed your work from the beginning of my career in this industry. So it means a lot to have this connection and to know how many people will hear this and hopefully be as inspired as I am by it. So thank you. And I hope your time with your family in Switzerland keeps going well and safely and um, tell your mom we say hello and thank you. And uh, I look forward to, to hopefully doing something like this again soon. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I, I strongly suspect that there will come a time in the not too different future, distant future where you will be the one being, you know, honored <laughs> and lauded and, and put on a pedestal and so on. And hopefully some of your portfolio companies as well. Uh, but it's been a great pleasure talking to you. It really has. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. And I know it's late. So have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. All right. And that's a wrap on another edition of What It Takes. Michael Liebrich is a great conversationalist. That was fun. Uh, thanks to Powerhouse for their partnership on this series. You go to powerhouse.fund for more information on future events. We've got dozens and dozens of interviews at Green Tech Media that you can search for. Just search for What It Takes. And uh, we've got show notes and pictures of our guests there. You can also hear more about the entrepreneurs that we profile, like what the, their companies are doing, because GTM follows many of them closely. So go to greentechmedia.com slash newsletters to get the news about all kinds of innovative companies straight into your inbox. And of course, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Send us a message or tweet if you want to suggest people to interview for this series and uh, just topics you want us to cover on the Energy Gang. And thanks for being with us. The gang will be back soon. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is What It Takes and the Energy Gang, uh, a production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. We'll talk to you soon.